Psalm 1, verses 1 through 6. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the sea of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff with the w- which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Good morning. like to thank everyone for being here this morning and also add my welcome to our guests and our audience in which you are our honored visitors and we hope that you will stick around afterwards and give us a chance to get to know you better. I you to know that here at Westside our ultimate goal is to see as many souls as possible make it into heaven and we want anything that we do in both word, thought, or deed to be towards that purpose. So we're thankful for your presence. I want to take a moment and extend some thanks to the elders as well for providing me with this opportunity and especially to Brother Sean for all of his help in helping me prepare for this event and knocking off the rough edges and making this presentable. This entire event kind of evolved out of a conversation with Sean that we were having after service one evening. I don't remember what Sean said to me that prompted the event, but I responded with the phrase, everybody needs a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. I really wish I could remember what he said because I would love to have the context to go along with that. But Sean looked at me and he says, a good phrase. He says, I should, I should preach a sermon on that. And then he stopped and he says, no, you should preach a sermon on that. And so despite my repeated attempts to inform him that he would be the better person to deliver this message, my impassioned pleas did not prevail against him and I stand before you today. So uh, the idea of the roles that we participate in here in the church and the people that we surround ourselves with in our lives are very important as Christians, and in preaching on one, I can kind of touch on the other pretty well. As human beings, we often define ourselves and those around us by the relationships that we have. Now, some of these relationships we ascribe at birth, like father and mother or son and daughter, and these familiar relationships, on paper at least, are already defined for us, and we spend most of our formative years learning the boundaries and how these relationships work in our place within them. Now, as we grow, we begin to develop relationships with those outside the family, and these tend to be a little more nebulous and perhaps a little less defined, but many will still fall into one of three main categories. It's that of either mentors, contemporaries, or students. Now, as Christians, these relationships all exist within the church, and the Bible is full of examples throughout both the Old and New Testament. The Bible also goes to great lengths to outline the importance of establishing relationships with people of godly character and wisdom. People who share the same goals of following God's law, obeying the gospel, and trying to get souls into heaven. Over in Proverbs chapter 12, Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 26 says, For the righteous is more excellent than his neighbor, but the way of the wicked seduces him. Now even the uh, English Standard Translation goes as far as to call the righteous a guide, or one that we define as a leader, or one who shows the way. In this case, the way is to get into heaven. When we begin our walk as Christians, we find ourselves as students 
Our knowledge of the Bible could be minimal or spotty at best, or at worst, completely misunderstood. Before I answered the gospel and I joined the kingdom, I knew just enough Bible knowledge to get myself into some real trouble. We still largely look to others at that point for guidance and understanding, those who can break down the precepts of the Bible in ways that we can easily understand and apply to our lives. In Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, we read, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. The Word of God is here for us to learn. God inspired mankind across the ages to chronicle events and conversations that were deemed vital for the Christian to learn about God, His power, His plan for mankind, and ultimately the path for salvation. So where do we fit into all of this? Where do we start? If we want to grow as Christians, we have to surround ourselves with those of like precious faith and understand the roles that they play in our lives. First, everybody needs a Paul. Before we can run, we have to know how to walk. With one exception, no one ever came out of the womb knowing the perfect path to salvation. We have to seek out those wise in ourselves if we want to find the way. Now, if you're born into a family that's already part of the kingdom, that is, the father and the mother have both been baptized and raised to walk in newness of life and have made the good confession, then that ready source of early instruction is already available to you. In his church, excuse me, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul points out the importance of early instruction. In Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with praise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Paul also emphasizes the importance of drawing on the knowledge of those bringing us up. In verse 4, he points to the parents and says, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Now, what about those of us who weren't born into the kingdom? Not everyone that wants to answer the gospel came from a godly family. Some of us could be coming from certain denominational churches or maybe no church at all. My own mother was raised Southern Baptist, but by the time I was born, could probably best be described as a Wiccan. She had no care for religion in any way. And my biological father, I'm not certain that he ever darkened the door of any church, certainly not on purpose. Now, I sought out God's word, but I did so with a very imperfect understanding to the steps of salvation. And it wasn't until I met and started dating my wife that I learned how great my need for proper instruction was. I began attending church with her and her family, listening to her dad preach, as well as getting instruction from the elders and deacons in Bible study. It wasn't long after that that one night in the fall of 2010, I realized that I had been very wrong about my faith and I needed to be baptized. Now, Jeff gladly did so that night, and it was a bittersweet moment for me because much like Paul and his conversion, I realized that everything that had come before was for loss, and I had wasted so much of my life. Because I was not raised in a biblically sound home, I had to seek instruction from another source. I needed teachers. The first step in growing as a Christian is to understand our need for proper instruction. The search for a teacher is an important one. When we go off to college, ideally, we seek out the institution that is most likely to give us the best education and our best chances for success in our chosen career field. If we don't lay a good solid foundation, we can't expect good works to follow. Over in Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7 and verses 24 through 27, Jesus is teaching the apostles the importance of where we lay our foundations. He says, 
Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not, for it was founded on a rock. And for everyone that hears these sayings of mine and does them not, he shall be like a foolish man which built his house on the sand. And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon the house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Learning a complex equation does one no good if they don't have a solid grasp of the smaller equations that make it up. So then, what elements do we need to look for in our role models? What qualifications would we demand of those that would teach us? Now, as the title of the sermon clearly points to, I've chosen Paul as our example, and let's take a look at some of the qualifications that Paul possesses that we would identify as those of a good teacher and role model. First, we look for someone who is older in the kingdom. Now, it goes without saying that the first qualification should be that we seek someone who has experienced life as a Christian and has gained the wisdom that only a life spent in service to Christ can provide. It can't just be any person. It should be a person we hold to a high standard of knowledge. Over in James chapter 3, James chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2, James says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. Now, we don't know the exact dates of Paul's life. It's widely believed that Paul was born roughly around the same time as Jesus, and he was converted sometime in the mid-30s AD and died sometime in the mid-60s. So therein lies roughly a 30-year period where Paul went forth preaching the gospel, helping to establish numerous churches throughout Asia, and suffering persecution. In Philemon verse 9, Paul calls himself Paul the aged, referring to himself as one who has seen and experienced many things on both sides of Christianity. And over in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, he refers to himself as chief of sinners. Now we can certainly argue that all the apostles experienced a great deal and passed much wisdom along to people around them. But in the roughly 30-year period that Paul served Christ, I think he in particular probably put a lot of miles on the road. Next, we look for someone who is always willing to continue learning. The best educators out there are those who can both acknowledge what they know as well acknowledge that they can still learn and admit when they're wrong. We saw in scripture, in the, excuse me, as we saw in the scripture reading in verse 5, a wise man will hear and increase learning and a man of understanding shall attain wise counsel. Now, there's no end to the road of wisdom and there's no final destination where we reach a perfect understanding of all there is. The verse in Proverbs points out that someone who is wise will continue to learn. And if he doesn't know the answers, he knows to seek out those answers from someone who does. In Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3 in the first 12 verses, Paul relates his own struggle along those lines. When you pick up in verse 4, he says, If anyone thinks he, have, he may have confidence in the flesh... I more so, circumcised on the eighth day, the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, I have counted these lost for Christ. And he goes on to point out the positive in verse 8. He says, Yet indeed I also count things for loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but from that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed of his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which is which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. The point we're trying to make here is that Paul thought he had it all figured out. He had all the boxes checked. He was a Hebrew, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, a zealous Pharisee concerning the law. He thought he had it all. Christians feared this man relentlessly, and his Pharisees praised him. And then to find himself there on his knees, blinded, understanding how wrong he was. He came to understand that everything he thought he knew was wrong. It wasn't long after he was baptized that he went back to work, though. Just a few days, in fact. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 20, we read that after his conversion, he immediately went, began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Paul was willing to admit when he was wrong, and he sought correction. Next, we look for someone who is always willing to teach. Now, the lion's share of the New Testament is, in of itself, a testament of Paul's willingness to teach. After helping to raise up several churches across Asia, it's only natural to assume that those he uplifted would eventually come to him for advice. The church in Corinth offers a few good examples of this. In chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, they requested his candor on the subject of marriage. And we know this because he responds in verse 1 with, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote to me. So they sought out his wisdom. He goes on to outline the many tenets of a proper marriage, and separation, and how the unmarried should conduct themselves. Later in chapter 12, he answers their questions again about spiritual gifts, and later again in chapter 16, about laying by in store. Paul never stopped teaching, even while he was in prison. Now, if we take his statements over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7-8 through 8 to heart, when he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished my course, and I have kept the faith, you kind of get the impression that he felt like he had a lot to do before his days were done. For Paul, the willingness was always there. Next, we look for someone who encourages. It's not enough to have the knowledge and the willingness to pass that knowledge on. The teacher has to be willing to nurture and encourage. The one who has faced the struggle and knows what lies ahead should prepare those who come after. In 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verses 1 through 7, Paul is encouraging Timothy, saying, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit those to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself in the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Now, Paul knew that because of his young age, there were people who would discount Timothy and his teachings. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, Paul says, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers of the word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. 
Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Paul was trying to point out to Timothy that it's not just important for him to preach to others. It's equally important that he pass that message on. It was just that important for his salvation. So now we've considered our need for good instructors. Let's take a close look at those that we associate with on a more frequent basis. And I want to aim this section in particular at our younger members, as many of you are still developing these relationships with those around you. When we think about our contemporaries, we usually consider those we tend to associate with most in our day-to-day lives. We often consider our closest friends, the people we associate with at work or school, the people we consider to be on our level in one way or another. Usually these people are close to us in age, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Uh, Barnabas was often considered a contemporary of Paul. Barnabas was there with him almost from the moment Paul first arrived in Jerusalem. They traveled together, they preached the gospel together, and were very much of one mind on spreading the gospel. So what did Paul see in Barnabas? And what should we seek for those that we look to spend most of our time with? First, we look for someone who is trustworthy. Trust is often considered both the most difficult and noble virtue of humanity. And it allows for an expectation of reliance on others. Bonds of friendship and fellowship are based on trust and responsibility, which in turn engender a sense of safety and security. In Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. Uh, so we read that there was a famine coming to Judea. Now the brethren were taking an opportunity to gather together some money to send to the local church down there against the coming shortages. And when they sent that financial aid to the brethren in Judea, they sent it by Paul, or excuse me, Barnabas and Saul. They sent with them because they knew both men could be trusted and that their actions spoke of their virtue and their ability to see that task completed. Next we look for someone who is both an advocate and a sponsor. Our best friends and allies are the ones who speak out for us at need. In any situation, it's always good to have someone at your back that understands you. And it wasn't long after Saul was baptized that Barnabas got to go to bat for him. Uh, the, <laughs> the disciples were understandably a little unsure of what to think about Paul and his sudden 180 in terms of attitude and action. In Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 27, we read that when Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to him how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he, God, had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Now, Barnabas' willingness to advocate on Paul's behalf helped bring the others around. And this was a trait that would surface again with a later with another disciple. Not only did he know when to stand up for Paul, he also knew when to get out of his way. Anytime before Acts 14, when you see the names together, it's always Barnabas and Saul. And with one exception afterwards, after chapter 14, when Paul becomes the chief speaker, it's always Paul and Barnabas. Now going from Iconium to Lystra, Paul was getting a lot of attention. After he healed the crippled man, people were in awe of Paul and his abilities, so much so that they were erroneously willing to worship him as a god. 
Barnabas understood that Paul had achieved a level of skill, of knowledge, and ability as an evangelist that had surpassed even him, and so he let Paul lead the way. Next, we look for someone who shares our struggles. Our best advocates and friends are often the ones that share the trenches with us. Those who face the same challenges and have the same understanding of consequences and ultimately seek the same goals. In Acts chapter 15, when a group of men from Judea came down and tried to teach the disciples that they had to be circumcised to be saved, Paul and Barnabas both debated them in verse 2, saying, When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them. They argued at length with the Judeans that circumcision wasn't necessary. The disciples decided to send Paul and Barnabas up to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and the elders on the matter. And what followed was a whirlwind trip through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing to different brethren the wonders that they had worked through Christ. Gentiles were being saved now. Their numbers were being added to. And the disciples, the brethren, were excited to hear about this. Their numbers were increasing. And when they get to Jerusalem... Again, a group of Pharisees tried to point out the necessity for circumcision for salvation. And again, Paul and Barnabas rose to the challenge. And we read, Then the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. They shared the struggle, they fought the same fight, and they did it back to back. This was their moment. This was their victory. And it was all through Christ Jesus. Let's take this a step further and consider Christ. Jesus lived as a man upon this earth so that he could experience the temptations that plagued mankind and yet prove that it was possible to rise above. Jesus shared all of our struggles. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we were, yet was without sin. Jesus shared the struggles of the apostles as human beings, making him both relatable and believable and ultimately their best friend and advocate. Next, we look for someone who supports us even when we don't see eye to eye. Even the best friends will eventually argue about something. Yesterday was the Arkansas-Alabama football game and maybe some minor disagreements between friends at that point in time. As unified as a group of people can be, we are, after all, human, and there will be differences of opinion, however small. And it wasn't long after the showdown with the Pharisees that Paul turned to Barnabas about making another tour. We read in Acts chapter 15 and verses 36 through 41, and Paul tells Barnabas that they should consider making another journey to go visit every city in which they had preached to visit with the brethren and see how things were going. Barnabas agreed and said that this time they should take John Mark as well. Now, this wasn't something that Paul agreed with. We don't know a great deal about John Mark at this point, except that he had initially set out with the disciples during Paul's first missionary journey, but left them very soon thereafter at Pamphylia, heading back to Jerusalem. We don't know exactly why Paul didn't want John Mark to come with he and Barnabas. We know the churches were providing money to Paul and Barnabas for their trips, and so maybe Paul just wanted to make sure that the money was getting put to good use. Maybe Paul felt that John Mark just wasn't ready for such a journey. But for whatever the reason, much as he did with Paul back when the disciples didn't believe with him, Barnabas stepped up and stood firm in defense of John Mark. In the end, starting in verse 39, we see that Paul and Barnabas decided to go their separate ways. Barnabas took John Mark, and Paul wound up taking Silas and would later meet up with Timothy. Now, this choice was no doubt bittersweet, but what's really going on here? 
Whereas before you had one discipleship team in the field, now you have two, and they're going in different directions. Paul and Silas going to Syria and Sicilia, while Barnabas and John Mark went down to Cyprus. Now, later writings would indicate that the friendship between Paul and Barnabas was probably unimpaired, and whatever John Mark's shortcomings at the time of dissension, he did later redeem himself in Paul's eyes. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11, Paul tells Timothy, Take Mark and bring him with you, for he is profitable to me in the ministry. So Barnabas had seen that he had done everything he could for Paul, and it was time to help somebody else to be uplifted. So we've considered Paul a teacher and Barnabas the contemporary. Now let's take a look at the student, Timothy. One of the chief tenets of Christianity is that we are called upon to spread the gospel to others. When Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, saying to the apostles, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Christianity wasn't just for the select few. Jesus knew that his time on earth was limited, and he also knew that the apostles' time on earth was equally finite. If we want to spread the seeds of faith, we can't just preach the gospel. We have to train new generations of evangelists. We have to train others up and prepare them for the challenges of answering questions on doctrine, encouraging others, and inspiring a willingness to spread the gospel wherever they can. Now, it is shown at great length in the Bible that Paul saw Timothy as one such person and dedicated a lot of his energy to giving Timothy instruction. So then what did Paul see in Timothy? And what should we look for in those that we want to pass the torch on to in the great race of evangelism? First, we look for someone with potential. We need to consider the need and the social environment and consider who is qualified to serve in that capacity. Is it someone who's relatable? Someone who's personable? Someone who always asks more or considers the details? When Paul considered Timothy, he saw a young man that was already strong in the teachings. And we read early in 2 Timothy about him being brought up in the church by his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. Paul also saw someone who could see both sides of the popular social point at the time. His mother was a Jew and his father was a Greek. We read in Acts chapter 16 verse 3, Him would Paul have go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters. For they knew all that his father was a Greek. So by becoming circumcised, Timothy could be more acceptable to the Jews and they would be far more likely to consider his teachings. There's also some indication that Timothy was probably perhaps a little shy or timid. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 10, Paul tells the church at Corinth, Now if Timothy comes, see that he may, he may be with you without fear, for he worketh the work of the Lord, as I also do. As we saw in earlier examples of encouragement, Paul would continually labor to lift Timothy up and encourage him. Next, we look for someone with a willingness to serve. Having the, excuse me, having the knowledge and fitting the need mean nothing if there is not a willingness to serve. There has to be a desire and a drive to help others to answer the gospel, to be more concerned for the soul than for the body. Now, we don't know how old Timothy was when Paul first came to him about preaching, but I'm here to tell you that if he was willing to be circumcised so that he could be better effective at preaching to the Jews, I'm here to tell you there was a willingness to serve. <clears throat> We also see in Acts chapter 19 and verse 22 that instead of going to Macedonia himself, Paul decided to send Timothy and Erastus instead, staying behind in Asia for a time. And this would give Timothy and Erastus 
a chance to grow and shine in their own ministries. Last, we look for someone who's willing to stand up for what they believe in. The life of a Christian is not an easy one. Now, we certainly don't have things as badly as they did back in the first century. Christians of that day seldom died of natural causes. It does not mean, however, that we do not face struggles of our own. We now exist in a society that continually eschews Christian doctrines at every opportunity and is actively turned on Christians on occasion. We don't have to look far to find those battle lines, ranging from the issue of prayer in schools, modesty issues in both men and women, homosexuality, abortion, marriage and divorce, the prevalence of drugs, alcohol, pornography, and even the issue of whether or not the church should meet when the government says it should not. It touches nearly every facet of our lives. And Paul certainly acknowledged the challenges being faced by the brethren even back then. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, Paul tells Timothy, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. The struggle against sin has often been compared to battle or warfare, and that we are God's soldiers. In those early days, standing up for the Christian faith often led to some pretty harsh punishments, ranging from imprisonment all the way to torture and execution. Most of the apostles met their earthly fates at the hands of the Romans. And it's widely known that Paul authored a great deal of his own correspondence while he was in prison there at Rome. And it can be evidence that Timothy took Paul's words about raging the good war to heart. We don't know exactly what time or what reason he was in prison, but in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 23 to 23, we hear him tell the Hebrews, And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in a few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Whatever the situation was, Timothy stood firm against the Romans and was imprisoned for his actions. Standing up for what we know is right, especially in the face of a society that disagrees with us, is hard. It's even harder when that society is willing to kill someone for what they believe. Timothy, though, along with the rest of the apostles, knew that the suffering on this earth would be very short-lived compared to the eternal riches and wonder that awaited them in heaven. They stood firm, and they kept their eyes on a kingdom that was not earthly. Now, all these examples that we've looked at I think lend credence to the notion that people are, in fact, products of their environment. And we can certainly reap these benefits based on the people that we pick to be in our lives. We can never account for all things in life. Satan is a crafty adversary, after all. But we can certainly reduce the margin forever and give people their greatest chances for success. And again, I want to stress to the younger members of the congregation, it might be too much to expect that every single person in your lives falls into one of three, these three categories, but you should have at least one, maybe even more. Timothy, Barnabas, and even Paul were made better and stronger Christians because of the people they surrounded themselves with. If we surround ourselves with people of godly character and wisdom, we can experience many of the same benefits. And the truth is, we, men and women alike, have to be all three of these categories if we want to experience a full measure of our faith. We have to pay attention and listen to those who teach us, we have to share our struggles and support those who march in step with us. And we have to pass those lessons on to those who follow behind us. If we deny ourselves any of these opportunities as they arise, then we cripple ourselves in our faith. So maybe you've only experienced one or two of these categories. 
Maybe you exist in all three at once. Or maybe you're the person that has yet to start their journey. Maybe you're the one that sees that it's time to find mentors and to start building that foundation. Once you've reached the age of accountability, it's never too soon to answer the gospel, to surrender yourself to Christ's will for you, to be raised to walk in newness of life, and to experience the joy of becoming part of the kingdom. It's never too soon to set your feet on the path that starts with the word of God and ends with entering into that narrow gate of heaven. Now, maybe you've already answered the call, and for whatever reason, you found yourself falling away to sin. It's never too soon for you to ask forgiveness for your sins and to continue down that path of righteousness and hear someday, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's never too soon to ask for any of these things, but there will come a day when it will be too late and to hear, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. If you seek either of those things, then this is that moment for you. And we ask you to come forward while we stand together and sing. Someday you'll stand at the